This message first aired on the radio on October 29th, 2003. Now we've been taking up the dispensation of the law, which is the fifth dispensation, as we find them in the Scripture. Uh, we find uh, the Scriptures to be orderly, uh, covering, uh, we'll say, eight dispensations. And uh, the, the Scripture says more or less about each of these, uh, what we might say, arrangements of God or economies of God. This dispensation, the one of law, we have spent a very long time on, uh, as, as far as this broadcast goes, and then on, as far as what's available in there to know, of course, we've spent very little time. But God has given us his word to enjoy. He's given us himself to enjoy. Um, we, are, uh, we are naturally fearful of God. We naturally run away from God. We don't run to him. We don't look after him. We, our sin has made us cowards and uh, guilty people. The Lord Jesus Christ died to make our consciences good toward God. And uh, once we've received Christ as our Savior, then we have a good conscience toward God, and our good conscience needs to answer God for the first time, answering God with a good conscience. And what is the first answer to God once your conscience has been made good? Why? It is baptism. And uh, that's the answer of a good conscience toward God. So those of you who've received Christ as your Savior, believe in Lord Jesus Christ, and since that time, if you've not been immersed, uh, let your conscience answer God in a good way and find a group of Christians who understand uh, what baptism means and what it doesn't mean and give a good answer, a good public answer uh, to God out of your good conscience. Uh, these dispensations, uh, stacked as they are end-to-end -end in time, uh, orderly as can be after the fifth this at the end of this fifth dispensation comes our Lord Jesus Christ to the nation Israel and uh, then uh, we'll follow with a discussion of the dispensation in which we currently live and operate which is the dispensation of the church which is his body but we've come into the final quarter of the dispensation of the law and we see Israel in captivity their unfaithfulness and idolatry led them into captivity, and so will yours. Your unfaithfulness and your idolatry will lead you into captivity, will lead you into the bondage of sin. It will lead a home into disarray. It will lead a nation to lose its sovereignty. And so that's what happened to the nation of Israel and even the remnant nation, which was Judah. First the nation divided uh, improperly, and then it fell. And we see that God is the one who brought the captivity upon uh, Israel and Judah. And, and now we're seeing Israel and Judah in captivity. And in order to get a, a cameo of that, or let's just say a, a vignette of that, uh, as a point of uh, summary... We're looking at the prophet Daniel, who, tribe of Judah, is in captivity. And Daniel and his three friends uh, are in the king's house. They were raised to uh, excellent status uh, because of their performance. And they're being educated in the way of the court of the King Nebuchadnezzar, especially in the college, we might say the University of Chaldea, and uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are, uh, 
are all uh, in the king's court. He's very young men, uh, and they're under training, and they grow there. And uh, they even are given uh, heathen names. Daniel is called Belteshazzar, um, which is named after the the god of uh, one of the Babylonian gods named Bel. Uh, Hananiah uh, is named Shadrach. Uh, Mishael is named Meshach. And Azariah is named Abednego. And... Um, so we have, at once we see the appalling state of Judah in captivity. On the other hand, we yet see the excellence of uh, those who have faith uh, in God and uh, God's Word, as as uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah hold fast, hold fast to the to their faith, uh, despite being in the captivity. And now, as we took up yesterday, Daniel was uh, uh, going, and all four of them, were going to be destroyed as part of the worthless religious people around the king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who could not uh, give him uh, his dream and the interpretation of it. He forgot the dream that was of God. God gave him a dream, and then and then Nebuchadnezzar forgot it, and he told his his uh, people around him, look, if you guys can do what you say you can do, you can interpret all manner of dreams, Get the, you can divine the wisdom that's in the heavens and give it to me. You want to be my counselors? Well, then you tell me what the dream is and then tell me the interpretation. Well, his astrologers and magicians and soothsayers told him that wasn't fair. But so what? He's the king. He said, well, okay. Uh, tell you what, you can say it's not fair, and I'll turn you your, I'll kill, I'll chop all of you up and turn your houses into dunghill. How's that trade? And uh, Daniel prayed for a little bit of time uh, through the captain of the of uh, the king's guard, and uh, then he called upon God, and God gave him the dream and the interpretation, and now he introduces to to Nebuchadnezzar. The God of the Israelites, he the, the only the only God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces God to Nebuchadnezzar, or introduces Nebuchadnezzar to God, and he said, "There is a God in heaven that reveals secrets, and that makes known to Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days." And here's where we see that God is the one who is the revealer of secrets. It's interesting. God has made all of us to want to know secrets. We like to have inside information, and he's the one who reveals inside information. Today, if you're a child of God, God has inside information. It's open. It's right here in the Bible. It's, it's as it were, hidden in the Scriptures. But it's public, but yet hidden. You say, how can that be? Well, I don't know how it can be. Here I am. I'm going to broadcast some of these secrets right over the air, and yet they will remain secrets, and they'll remain unknown to so many, in fact, they'll be they'll remain unknown to almost all, despite the fact that we can even broadcast them, write books about them, talk about them for well as much as twenty five hundred years. Now, uh, dispensationally and and uh, let's just say uh, uh, op- operationally in the world, what God has done is He has transferred the kingdom on earth under Himself, which is the kingdom of the heavens. 
he has transferred it from Israel to the Gentiles. Now, that does not mean that the kingdom of the heavens has been permanently taken away from Israel. It has not. That does not mean that God gave his word to the Gentiles. He did not. His word is given here only to Daniel. And the Gentiles have to get the word of God from Daniel. They have to get the word of God from Jeremiah. They have to get the word of God from Mordecai in, in, in one case, um, in, in, in the uh, uh, affairs of, of, of things. God only gave his word to Israel. To, he didn't give it to any other nation. Now, having completed his word through the nation of Israel, and every book of the Bible has been written by a Jew, and don't you tell me that Luke was a Gentile. That is a ridiculous statement. He's just a Hellenistic Jew. He just has a Hellenistic name. That is not unusual. That is no big deal. Every single one of the seven deacons in Jerusalem also had Hellenistic names. The Hellenism's penetration into Judaism by the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles who followed him was quite thorough and reached very many names. And just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Jews, despite the fact that they've been renamed under Gentile names. Well, what God is doing is he's moving the kingdom of the earth away from the nation of Israel. And they have not gotten it back, nor will they get it back, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled and the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ, returns to earth. So this is an amazing thing. Uh, that the, that God moved the kingdom from Israel, the house of David, put him in captivity, and placed it in Gentile world power, and has done so for 2,500 years now. And we see that uh, typified uh, in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation that follows. So uh, Daniel tells him, well, there's a God that makes known the secrets, uh, and uh, this God wants to uh, has has given for me to tell you what your dream is and uh, what the interpretation thereof, so that you'll no longer be disturbed. And it put, he puts it this way: that thou mightest know the thoughts of your own heart. And uh, I want to tell you something. Maybe you're maybe you're listening to this broadcast. You're a pretty smart guy, or, or maybe you're a pretty smart woman, or maybe. You, Maybe maybe you think you are and you're not. That's a different issue than you are, and you know you are. You know you're in, intelligent enough, but your own thoughts still are bottomless and incomprehensible to you. You don't really understand your own self. As one has put it, your your heart has a reason that reason doesn't even know. And uh, God is able to resolve that conundrum. God is able to meet that thirst you have where you find yourself insufficient about yourself. And let me even just let me even just put it one step further. No one can know themselves until they come to terms with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that solves the riddles not just in the heavens, but he solves the riddle of you. So, uh let that be to you something uh, that you ponder. 
because that was the case with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So here's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, and we're in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel is an unusual book because not only is this a secret in heaven locked up uh, with God and, and opened up to the prophet Daniel and therefore and then to Nebuchadnezzar and then to the rest of us that read it, but God told Daniel, lock up this book until the time of the end, and so you'll find that very few people really understand the book of Daniel. It's a, it's a complete mystery. I use the words carefully. Uh, to, to Jews, because this book is incomprehensible outside of the clear understanding of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what he tells him, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. And I'll just mention this is one of the characteristics of the Word of God. Uh, we don't have to just sit around and surmise what the interpretation of this dream means. It is given in the Scripture. And Daniel says, we'll tell you exactly what it means. And we're going to look at that when we come back in just a minute. But will you listen to this announcement first, please? Well, we're, we're eager to look at the interpretation of this uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar's given. Uh, clearly, if Daniel gave him the wrong dream, he'd say, that's not what I dreamed. But now when he gives him the dream, uh, certainly it settles upon Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in his mind, yeah, that's right, I remember it now. Thanks for reminding me. And so Daniel goes on to say this, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Now, uh, this is uh, actually quite a statement. Uh, Daniel is here telling Nebuchadnezzar uh, that uh, uh that he has been chosen by God uh, to be given a kingdom, uh, power, strength, and glory. Uh, now, he wasn't certainly the first king of Babylon, and uh, yet he is uh, the king of kings, the one that God gave the kingdom on earth to. And it says, wheresoever the children, Daniel continues, wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, has he given into thine hand and has made thee a ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So you, now if, maybe you uh, need to be reminded of what that message looks like. But it, it's, a, it's an image uh, that in the shape of, a, in the form of a man. It has a head of gold. It has... Uh, a chest of um, 
silver. It has a thorax or thighs midsection of brass. It has legs of iron, and it has feet of iron mixed with clay. So we have uh, really given here uh, uh, an image in five sections. And um, the five sections are uh, distinguishable as head, shoulders and arms, uh, midsection, legs, and, le and feet. And uh, feet and toes, actually, literally feet and toes. Those are the five uh, sections. And then they're comprised of five materials. The, the five materials are gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. So they're composed of materials uh, whose uh, rarity on earth uh, decreases as the image goes proximatistally from head to foot. And uh, gold is the, uh, of course, most precious, and clay at the end with mixed with iron is the least and the most uh, prevalent. And uh, also, if you were to look at a at an atomic chart, you would see that the specific gravities of these uh, metals, uh, gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron mixed with clay, uh, maybe you'd say that substantial amount of selenium or something, um, the specific gravity is in descending order, which makes the image top-heavy and uh, there are those who would say that this image has to be laying down because it certainly can't be standing up. Well, if it's laying down, it's laying down historically with its head resting on 500 B.C. and its toes uh, resting on about 2000 A.D. or so. And not much so, not very far off of that. So it's about a 2,500-year-long image laying say on its back head to the to the negative side of the uh, line with 0 AD being in the middle and now uh, he uh, Daniel goes on it for he tells him tells Nebuchadnezzar you are the head of gold now he doesn't say that Babylonian kingdom is the head of gold he says that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of the uh, the head of gold and that's very interesting because when Nebuchadnezzar ends his reign, uh, there is a regency when he's in, there is an interregnum, for example, where by all appearances, according to the scripture, uh, the Persian king is a very senior uh, regent in the kingdom and actually is ruling. Uh, there is not the hostility between the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom, which will follow it, uh, that you would ordinarily anticipate until Nebuchadnezzar's off the scene and his wicked grandson is, is in place. Uh, well, there's a lot to be said there, and uh, that's a very full study of the book of Esther, which will lay that out. But I can tell you, if you're a, if you're a student of the Bible, that this is mischaracterized uh, so often, uh, and the the history of these ancient kingdoms is clouded uh, by the ignorance of man uh, to a very great extent. We do best just to read the scriptures and study them carefully. So, so Nebuchadnezzar himself is the head of gold of the image. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, 
and, an- and a th- another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. So here it says, after Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom inferior to his, one of silver, will rise up. And this is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And if you look, if you think about the human body and you think about the head, you can see there's a certain oneness to the head. Now, inside the head, there's a certain twofoldness, as we have an axis of symmetry uh, in our, uh, down the middle of our head. But uh, in in the in the scope of the body, the head is a, a single uh, looking thing. Whereas, be, uh, as we go past the neck and we come to the uh, shoulders and breast, we see a twofoldness to the body. We see it uh, 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 being a mirror reflection, uh, uh, one of another, and this now is the Medes and the Persians' kingdom, uh, inferior to Babylon in the sense of, actually it says inferior to thee, another kingdom shall arise, inferior to Nebuchadnezzar. And the governmental inferiority of the Persian Empire was such that whatever whatever Nebuchadnezzar said, that was just flat law. And if he said something else, then the law changed. In the in the kingdom of the Persians, the law was above the ruler, and so he could make a law, but he could not alter it and change it. And uh, that is uh, well understood in the scriptures. For example, in the book of Esther, and you'll see that the the Ahasuerus the ruler of the uh, Persians, has to negotiate around the law that he sets in place, whereas Nebuchadnezzar uh, could rule at his whim. So another kingdom inferior to thee, to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now that third kingdom, uh, the one of brass, that bear rule over all the earth, is the one that followed on the Persian kingdom, and it's the Greek kingdom. And it is best pictured, of course, uh, in Alexander the Great, who wept when he was a young man in his uh, in his twenty one years old, because he had conquered the whole world, or so he said. And uh, there was no more worlds to conquer. And and then it says, and in verse forty of Daniel chapter two, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And so following fast upon the Greek kingdom of Alexander that broke up into four pieces, uh, following fast upon that is what here is called the fourth kingdom. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, for there shall be of it the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of the iron and part of the clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay." Now, here we have a rather complicated uh, scenario laid out for us, and that has to do with the interaction of the, with the internal development, we could say, and the interaction of the metals, or the metal and the clay, of the fourth kingdom. 
But here's what we know about the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom follows the third kingdom. And we know that this is a continuous image. This is not an image that disappears for a while and then comes back. This is a continuous image. And so uh, the, the fourth kingdom at least includes the Roman kingdom or the Roman Empire. Now, I have uh, pe- people I know that say, well, uh, this Bible teaches that there is a Roman e- that the Roman Empire will be revived in the time of the end, and so forth and so on. But that is not what the Bible teaches. There are, there are good people, I suppose, whatever, why callest thou them good? There's one that's good. There are people who are knowledgeable of the Scriptures, uh, certainly more knowledgeable than I am about some things. Uh, but they are not knowledgeable about the Scriptures when they say that the Bible teaches that the Roman Empire will revive at the time of the end. The Bible just does not teach that. The Bible teaches that there is an empire that follows the Greek Empire that's a very puzzling-looking thing, and if if it certainly includes Rome. It includes Rome but it may not be all what Rome is. In fact, it doesn't begin with Rome. It begins with the breakup of the Greek Empire, which breaks into four or more pieces, and which reforms itself, and which continually reforms itself until it becomes the Roman Empire, and and that continues to reform itself and redo itself until it becomes the eastern and western empires of today, until it becomes mixed with miry clay, things that don't hold together, until it finally will become a ten-toe kingdom, a group of ten kings at the time of the end. And I would caution you uh, not to over-summarize this and not to believe somebody's interpretation of this, but to keep this image uh, and the description of it before your thoughts so that you realize that every bit of it will be true. And in the in the latter times, it tells us, here it says, uh, Wherefore, when thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay, uh, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. So it won't be seen in, under a unified leader. But there sh- it won't be seen in a unified way. It will be divided, and it will be seen in a divided way. But there shall be in it of the strength of iron, uh, for as that thou saw the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken or partly brittle. And then, and then the scriptures, as Daniel gives him the interpretation... Uh, turns to this unusual phrasing of verse 43, uh, whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. And here is the uh, unusual and uh, ubiquitous they. And uh, here we see uh, the, the mixing of them with the uh, seed of men. Um, we and they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with the clay. And so we have uh, all, all manner of things to consider about that. We can consider, for example, the mixture of 
of ruling people with the uh, democratic principle. We can see that there there seems to be that 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 gives some evidence that we have the idea of as we see the specific gravity of the metals decrease over the form of this image. We we do see that there is a dilution of authority. And we see something of the authoritative line of men or the rulership of men mingling with the common man, and that doesn't that give us a bit of the of the uh, uh, mixing of democracy with, say, for example, autocracy, and and in, and then in between we have certain representative government, as the government of the Gentiles um, diluted from the pure autocratic rule of Nebuchadnezzar down into the rule of law of the Persians, down to representative government of the citizens of Greek, Greece, down to something more, even more democratic than the Greeks ever envisioned. And isn't that the conflict of East and West that we've seen where the West promoted a form of representative government and uh, the Eastern Bloc nations uh, under the Hegelian dialectic, promoted uh, what was once called pure democracy. Uh, well, uh, these are things that uh, we can think about and that do explain to an extent uh, something of uh, the kingdom, how the kingdom has devolved among men. But there is also the the involvement of the angelic host. We know uh, that there is an interplay, and we learn from the book of Daniel that there's an interplay between the angelic hosts and the governments of men, and are they, the they, are the angelic, fallen angelic hosts, the they who mingle themselves with men, uh, as was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the time and the coming of the Son of Man, and that somehow we have an eruption into the race of the angelic host, or is it all of these things together uh, that formulates the dissembling and the chaotic condition and the uh, condition just before the destruction of Gentile world power in the time of the end? Well, all of these are rich thoughts uh, upon which we do well to meditate, compare Scripture with Scripture, but it's not the purpose of our study here. We just want to lay out that God has created this time of the Gentiles. It is part of his economy. And this time of the Gentiles is not a dispensation of itself. It is a condition now that lasts through each of the ensuing dispensations, which is the remainder of the dispensation of law and the dispensation that we are in today, the church which is his body. And we need to see the difference between what is Gentile, what is Jewish, and of course what now is the church of God. And if we were able to do that, then when we say we, we would always have a context of who we are talking about. Sometimes we talk about we, I mean me and the mouse in my pocket. Sometimes when I say we, I mean me and my family. Sometimes when I say we, I mean me and the rest of the people of the city. Sometimes when I say we, I mean me and the rest of Americans. Sometimes when I say we, I mean me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. And those contexts are all necessary because the we for which Gentile world power is relevant is our national we, is our national we. And you look in here and you can find all nations 
are part of this condition which has passed on down into the condition of iron and iron and clay. And we make up, uh, we Americans, make up part of that. And so does every nation. Well, uh, here now, uh, Daniel uh, goes into the verse 44 after, after the puzzling verse 43, they shall mingle themselves. Then it says, verse 44, in the days of these kings. So the mingling of themselves has to do with the rising up of these kings. And we find out from Scripture that the days of these kings are short, but that finally ten kings will rule on the earth for a brief period of time, and for a, an even briefer time, for one hour of their time, these kings will yield their power to one of their own, the man of sin, who will bring to pass uh, the great wrath of Satan upon the world as the wrath of God finally uh, visits uh, this earth. Now, that's quite a couple of summary statements I've made. I don't apologize for them, but I can't really go into them uh, in much detail and still get through uh, this portion that teaches us of the inauguration of the kingdom of the Gentiles. So he now tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the days of these kings, that is at the end, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. After all, we have to now uh, understand what, if you remember the dream, there was this image and then there was a stone that was cut out without hands, which smote the image not on the head, but on the feet and ground it into powder, broke it all up into pieces and broke up the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broke it all together, made it like the chaff of the wind, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them, that is, the pieces. Now that also means that whereas there were successor nations that followed upon each of these nations, from, from the head of gold Nebuchadnezzar, a successive kingdom, I say nation, but I mean a, successive, a successor kingdom, the Persian kingdom, yet there was still left of, enough of, the Babylonian kingdom, and there still is, that it will be destroyed at the time of the end. There's still enough left of the Persian kingdom that it will be destroyed at the time of the end. There's still enough left of the Greek kingdom that it will be destroyed at the time of the end. And the fourth kingdom, unnamed, of which Rome must be a part, there's enough left of it at the end it will be destroyed. How will it be destroyed? Well, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up his kingdom, or a kingdom, which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now that is when God brings in his kingdom. God will set up his kingdom at the time of the end. It is not going to be some kind of gradual development. It will be suddenly. It will be done without human hands. The God of heaven will set up his kingdom. It will consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever or unto the ages. This is the age-abiding kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's going to do that. For as much as thou sawest, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, 
the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Now, that's a very, very brief statement really made to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. I've certainly gone on quite a bit longer than Daniel did. Very brief statement. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel. Now, that's a Gentile thing to do. And commanded that they should offer an oblation, that is, offer a sacrifice and sweet odors unto him. Then came, uh, the king then answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is the God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeings that thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, and they gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, what happened here is Daniel was made the prime minister of Babylon because he had the wisdom of God. Interesting. Daniel did not run for office, my friend, so don't get ambitious. Daniel had no ambition. Daniel was a man of God whom God raised up. God, people tell, talk to me about Daniel and say, well, don't you think we ought to be politically involved? Daniel was. Daniel was the antithesis of being politically involved. Daniel was involved with God's word, and the King Nebuchadnezzar set him into a place as the head of the heathen college of pontiffs in Babylon. We'll look at more of this when we come back. In the meantime, will you listen to this announcement? Well, we're looking here at the Word of God that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And this fellow Nebuchadnezzar, he, he fell down to worship Daniel. But he did not fall down to worship God. And uh, this fellow, he's a problem. He gives Dan he makes good on his promise, and he gives Daniel a great privilege in the kingdom, sets him above everybody in the kingdom except himself and his son. But... Uh, uh, Daniel now requested of the king that he get some help, as he's been given this. Uh, he's in, over the whole province of Babylon, and he's chief of all the governors. Uh, he's the chief of the governors over all the wise men, and he knows that he's got his hands full with those guys uh, because they hate him. Bunch of manipulating, nasty clergymen, college professors. What a combination! Uh, I would say these guys are a combination of college professor, clergyman, doctor, medical doctor, and lawyer. That's what you got here. You got that group. And uh, so Daniel knows he needs help, so he requests the king. He says, uh, let, me have, uh, let me have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to help me. Um, and so the king accedes to that, and he sets up a triumvirate underneath Daniel, and Daniel administers uh, the kingdom for the king, uh, sitting in the gate of the king. That's what Daniel chapter 2 tells us. Now, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is a man of great power, and he's just found out from the God of heaven that he's the head of gold. And let me just say that the fact that he was the head of gold went to his head. 
And uh, you, you may know the story uh, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an image of gold uh, whose height was three score cubits. Now, that's a pretty high, uh, pretty high. That is 60 uh, cubits, with the cubit being uh, on the vicinity of 25 inches. Uh, we could say uh, a couple of feet. So here he's got a 120-foot-high image, which he sets up in the plain of Dura. Now, we don't know what this image is, but it is uh, 120 feet high, and it's uh, six cubits wide. So it's, it's not all that wide. It's about uh, 12 feet wide and 120 feet high. And uh, uh, that won't just stand up if it's uh, without, without some kind of uh, particular uh, architectural feature. Uh, but it, it, it looks like that. And uh, big um, Asherah, gold Asherah-looking thing, very possibly. And then Nebuchadnezzar sent the king to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges... The treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which he sets up. And maybe you know the story. He tells all the people what time you hear the sound of the cornet flute sack, uh, the cornet flute harp sack, but psaltery dulcimer and all kinds of music. You fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship that image will be thrown into the middle of a burning, fiery furnace. So here he gets all the people of entitlement, all the people who want to be somebody or who are somebody, princes, governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, all the rulers of the provinces, they gather together. And when the music's played, uh, and, and notice the role of music in this. Those of you big, you love your music, Look at the role of music in this. When they hear the music, that's when the idolatrous worship starts. And uh, let me assure you, this is very involved music, every kind of instrumentation. And that's when false worship starts. And that's true. That's a fact. And uh, you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it. And they get thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. God preserves them from that. But our purpose isn't to give full exposition of the book of Daniel or the meanings of all this, but to demonstrate the kind of guy that this Nebuchadnezzar is. This is the kind of guy he is. He's a world ruler. He's got at work behind him are wicked spirits in heavenly places trying to deceive him and, and bring about this horrible false worship. That's the, that's the movement of the spirits behind Nebuchadnezzar. And because he is not savvy to God, except Daniel sorts him out, except he pays attention to Daniel, uh, he cannot uh, help in himself but to uh, go along with this uh, deceit that, that he apparently pays attention to. Now, he throws uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, into the fire, and uh, he looks in the fire, and he says... Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt. The form of the fourth 
is like unto one of the sons of God. That's really what he says, literally, as uh, the Lord Jesus Christ there showing himself strong in behalf of the Hebrew children and keeping them. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar again says, Blessed be the God, now not just the God of Daniel, but also the same God is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they may not serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut in pieces and their houses will be made a dunghill because there is no other god that can deliver after this and the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, I want to say that this king, still not believing in the God of the Jews, in, in the one true God, but now respecting that God, and God will honor him for that. And uh, he says anybody speaks ill of, of this God is going to get chopped up into pieces, and their houses will be turned into garbage. So he shows, again, some reverence. Now, in another time, this guy uh, 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 is uh, walking about. He he gets a dream about himself, and God's going to have to deal with Nebuchadnezzar and his pride until Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, acknowledges that the heavens do rule over the earth. And it doesn't have to be this bad for you to acknowledge it. But next time when we come together in this radio show, we'll look at what it takes for Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge that, and we'll see what God is doing uh, through all of that. Uh, So may God bless you until we uh, talk to you again out of the Word of God tomorrow. In the meantime, won't you give this beautiful hymn a listen?